How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Yeah. We are here. We are here. Mark Mark went somewhere. We're here. Want to I, see should probably, I should probably close the door. If I'm okay. You want to see something really funny? So we did this, um, this Comic-Con autograph signing thing over the weekend with the Zoom kids. And these were all over the wall. I love it. What I'm showing here is the one of the first uh, pictures of me from Zoom, 1972, 50 years ago. I have a request. Can I please, pretty please, with sugar on top, have an autographed version of that so I can frame it? You, I would be honored and delighted with no charge, Mark. No charge. No charge at all. I love it. That is awesome. That must have been so much fun. Nostalgia is such an amazing concept. It is. It's it's really quite remarkable. Um, I was actually away during the 4th of July for the first time in my life outside the country on our Independence Weekend. And uh, it was just July 4th, 2022 <laughs> in España. So I went to Spain, Dr. Joe, with my family and my in-laws, who I adore so very much. So we tried to do a big vacation every year starting about seven years ago and then COVID blew it up for a couple so it was time so we went to Barcelona Mm. where one of uh, Julie and I's nieces is working studying abroad if you will and um, beautiful city but you know what when in Spain what do you have to do The the sun also rises yes I mean Ernest Hemingway you're in Spain you go to a bullfight right right did you? That, yes. Wow. And? I was very ignorant going into the whole thing. Mm. No bull. Go ahead. Let's hear about it. So Bugs Bunny, right? Looks fun. It looks artistic. It's, a, it's an event. It's cheering. It's sombreros. It's fun, right? So I have this, this fantasy of what a bullfight is in my head. Kind of because of the sun also rises too. So we figure it out. You know, Timmy, he's focused on it too. He's dialed in. He wants to do it. All the signs were there. Don't do this. Whoa. All of them. The Every moment, every turn, Whoa. Julie was like, I'm very sad. It saddens me that you want to go to a bullfight. And I'm like, really? Like, is it, is it that bad? Is it that bad? So then we go to, we buy to the train station we're trying to figure out how to get tickets to uh, madrid for an overnight stay and a bullfight and it was a disaster it was the dmv at its worst take a number people were leaving a couple of employees were doing their best to take care of everybody but for the most part it was a disaster probably four hours of my time going to the kiosk, kiosk didn't work, go to this, go to the window. Finally, this woman helped us. We got three tickets for the train. And I figure we'll do a hotels tonight when we get there. And hey, worst case scenario, we see an amazing city, right? 
the capital, Madrid. So we go. And OMG, have you ever been described exactly what happens at a bullfight? Actually, why don't you just go ahead and tell us? I had no idea. So they come out and it's really formal and nice. And they go to the where the royalty would be and the horses and they bow to the to the uh, area where the royalty would be, but they weren't there. Neither was 80% of the stadium. So it's like 20% full, which is a really good sign for the future of bullfighting. And then they bring out the bull. And in their, in their face, Dr. Joe, it was like Rudy. It was like Bella. Like they were just like, what am I doing? Like, what, what's going on here? And they go out and get them all fired up. And they have their uh, Olay drapes and get them all fired up and he's like okay i'm fired up now so i have no idea what's happening like i'm like okay the matador this hero is going to come out in the middle now and have a fair fight he's going to bring his his thing out there his little red thing and have a fair fight just like in bugs bunny right it was fair and then this horse comes out full padding thick padding blinders on the horse so, because I mean, obviously, if a bull comes charging at a horse, the horse is going to freak out and run. Boom! Hits the horse. And I'm like, what is going on? And the guy on the horse spears the bull in the back of the head. Yep. Blood spurts out. I'm like, whoa. Mm-hmm. What is that? So then they get him fired up a little bit more. <clears throat> And this is not the Matador, right? This is the Toreador. The, the Matador is around. So there was right. two, two uh, stars, if you will. Yeah. And they were kind of around, but it was more like the rodeo clowns were running out there and just getting them fired up. So then two other individuals come out. And it was really weird. They're in like tights and it looked like they had um, buoys in their hand or like bowling pins. And I'm like, what the hell are they doing? They're going to get hurt out there. And then bang, they spike the back of the neck of the bull with these two things and they run away and the bull sometimes chases them because it's like, you just stuck a knife in my back. And then the matador comes out and this bull is like half alive at this point. Continues, continues. And then that's where the, the drama is, is there, ole, everyone's cheering, ole. And I'm like, this this animal is almost dead right now. Like what is, what is so cool about that? Mm -hmm. And then it's the stadiums shushing each other and he gets in his position with the sword. The matador does. Yes, sir. Bang right in the back of the head. And then maybe pulls it out and does it again. And then if it's not dead, there's folks that come over and like stir it around in his spine. And then they bring out the horses and they drag the body out of the stadium. It was the most gruesome, barbaric thing I've ever experienced. Yeah. It's a powerful image. It's remarkable. So here's the moral of the story. Okay. Don't go to a bullfight. Don't pay the money. Be like Barcelona. Turn it into a mall. It was not art because I read some articles afterwards and that's one of the debates, you know, we have art, it's custom, it's culture. You can't take this away. Oh, yes, you, we can. It's a, it's a powerful story, a powerful image. I will tell you my story about it as well. 
when I was about three or four years old, I went to a bullfight. Whoa. Who brought you? My dad. Was a lot, and he actually took films of it. We have had he been to had he been to one before? I don't think so. I don't think so. And it was it was pretty much identical to what you say, but but we have it all on tape on on, on these old real film, you know, R E E L. Click 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 click. And it, it is it's brutal. I mean, you know, there you are. It's a very interesting interesting image. It was and one I, that I'm not going to ever get out of my head. I'm glad that you that you went. You know, there's there's one thing about you know human beings, you know, taking the life of an animal, but there is another thing about other human beings dictating to other human beings what they can and cannot do with who they are, with their bodies, with their lives. Can you please introduce our amazing guest? Absolutely, Mark. Our guest tonight is an assistant professor of justice studies at San Jose State University. She earned her PhD in political science at Rutgers University, and her new book, The Pregnancy Police, Conceiving Crime, Arresting Personhood, is under contract with the University of California Press. Obviously, tonight we're talking about the new Thor movie. <laughs> no, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone, Dr. Grace Howard. Professor Grace Howard, thank you so much for being here tonight to talk about this topic that is affecting not just America, but the entire world. Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's really important. I know it's been sort of a bananas uh, couple of weeks here, um, but I'm, I'm never tired of talking about this. It's so important. It's such an intimate kind of feature in so many people's lives. Um, and our lives are about to change kind of fundamentally. So I'm happy to be here to talk about it. So let's just spell it out. So we're talking about the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, which I believe is about 49 years old, passed in like 1973. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Just shy of the 50th birthday. They knew we were going to have all kinds of like cool pro-choice swag and they really they didn't want to give it to us. <laughs> So where do we start with this discussion? I mean, is it even a discussion tonight? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's like, this is huge, right? I mean, I know there's been a lot of discussion already um, about how the decision is written and what it means, but just to like quickly reiterate, essentially what the court did is it said, hey, I know that about 50 years ago, we said there was a right to privacy, but now we're deciding there's not. And they said, essentially, but don't worry about it. We're not going to get rid of all of your privacy rights. We're only going to get rid of this one because the state of Mississippi says that this privacy right is leading to you destroying living humans, i.e. fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses, right? So that's what they said. But if you read between the lines, and I think that we really ought to, there is no way that they can have this decision written as is and not have it take out every other privacy right. Those are things like birth control. Those are things like gay marriage. Those are things like non-procreative sex of all kinds. I know we say like gay sex, but like non-procreative sex, period. I mean, when you saw anti-sodomy laws on the books, they weren't just for gay people. It was for non-procreative sex overall, right? So all of these things rely on a right to privacy, um, which is never explicitly stated in the Constitution. The word privacy isn't in there, right? But we can look at all these little amendments and kind of taken together 50 years ago, 
the court said, it sort of looks like there's a right to privacy here. Let's do it, right? Um, so this court in this, in, this, in this opinion has essentially dismantled this whole thing. And that's really only the tip of the iceberg. But now everyone in every state can vote on it, right? Like if I'm in any state, I get to vote. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that's really frustrating, too, is that, I mean, I would suggest that the way that our voting system is set up, it's like inherently anti-democratic, um, right? This The structure of the Senate, right, where, you know, people in L.A. County, the population is so huge and it's bigger than, you know, all of these state populations put together. But California gets two senators just like every other state does. So, I mean, what this decision did was it kicked the issue back to the state's. Right. And that means that if you are someone with voting rights in a state, then like hypothetically, you can vote and you can keep abortion legal where you are. That's really hypothetical, though, because this court, of course, has also been very active in gutting voting rights right? for for like the last decade or so. They've been like really active in this way. We see all of this really rough gerrymandering um, that it's being ruled as acceptable. Um, right. It used to be if states wanted to pass some kind of voting regulation, we would assume that that regulation was unconstitutional and the burden was on the state to prove this is why we really, really need this regulation. It had to be like super important. But we got rid of that, too. Right. So now states can pass all of these voting restrictions. Um, I know in my area of expertise, I work in reproductive law broadly, but I do a lot of work on the criminalization of pregnancy. And so this is a concern that we have, too. If you make abortion a felony and we punish pregnant people who try to have abortions, then like we're about to have like a pretty substantial segment of the population have the, their voting rights removed. Um, and we know that- Not that's- a big leap. Isn't that a big leap right there? I always I, thought this was a big leap. Why, why, would, that, why would that be a big leap, Mark? The the suggestion that, that you just made there. Oh, becoming felons and getting our voting rights taken away? Yeah. So in my- How heart- would that, how would that happen? How would it go from today to that in, okay. in process? But before that, just let me get, let me just be sure. So, if you are a felon and convicted of something and are in jail, your voting rights are taken away from you. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, this is another kind of the technicality of it is a state by state thing. But in a lot of places, if you've ever been convicted of a felony, you lose your right to vote. In some states, after you get out of prison, you can like fill out paperwork and appeal to have that right restored. And they'll only do it for certain kinds of crimes. Um, I believe it if it's considered like nonviolent crimes. Um, In my home state of Virginia, um, that was that was the case um, like a decade ago when a friend of mine was trying to get his voting rights back after incarceration. So how do we get there. Here's why I don't think it's a stretch. So the book I'm working on right now, I look at only three states, South Carolina, Alabama, and Tennessee. And these are the three states that ever officially, either through the courts or through the legislature, made it a crime for a pregnant person to do something that could have a negative impact on a fertilized egg embryo or fetus. So that um uh varying times um south carolina they started arresting people for stuff like this in the late 80s um and there were like a couple moments um where it became varyingly official i'd say 2003 is like most recent um court one alabama did it in 2013 um and in tennessee it was on the books for like two years um which is weird for a criminal law but it's because people were like should we do this um 
uh, and that's, it had a, yeah, automatic sunset provision. So it expired after those two years, but that was like, let's say it ended in like 2018. Um, and so, you know, just from those three states, I have around 800 arrest cases of people who were charged with these crimes. Um, and some of them were felonies. So like convicted. even, sorry? They were convicted of Or they the take crime. plea bargains, right? Because most, most criminal cases end with a plea bargain in the United States. So they pled guilty to that crime? Yeah, right. And so this is another important thing to note let, is that- Let, let, let me just, let, let me just, for our listeners, just clarify distinctly yeah. what was the crime that they pled guilty to? In the plea bargain. So, so it can be um, the the technical charges that are brought vary a lot. Um, they can be things like chemical endangerment of a minor, right? If you take a substance, even a legally prescribed medication that could potentially have a negative impact on a fetus, um, and we know there's a lot of misinformation about drugs and pregnancy too. Um, there like what? were. But wait, wait, no, no, let's stick with this. With this <laughs> first, <laughs> crack babies, but it's, it's, it's coming no, 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 at no, us no, so quickly. Yeah. Right, right, but let's, let's, let's just stick first with, with what what were they pleading guilty what, to? Yeah. So the first one was endangerment of a minor. Chemical endangerment. This was chemical. Alabama. It's mostly chemical endangerment there. Okay. Um, there were some other things too. So there was a um, uh, someone managed self-managed an abortion illegally in South Carolina. Um, she was 16 weeks pregnant at the time, could have gone to North Carolina to have a legal abortion, um, but she couldn't afford it and she didn't speak English and she had very little resources. So she did um, a medication abortion at home and she got caught and they tried to charge her with homicide. Um, eventually, she got the charges reduced a little bit to an illegal abortion. Um, there are cases where people are charged um, feticide is another that we see. So um, these two aren't from my study states, but um, just as illustrative. Um, so one of these cases, it was uh, someone surviving a suicide attempt. Um, uh, she was in her third trimester of pregnancy and an immigrant woman pretty isolated in Indiana. Um, uh, Bebe Shui is her name. And her boyfriend left her and she freaked out and she ingested rat poison and survived and went to the hospital and was like, do everything you can to save my baby. She, they did an emergency cesarean section, but the baby didn't make it. And she sat in prison for, or in jail rather, for a year. They didn't give her bond. She was charged with feticide, which is a felony. It's a homicide um, charge. She got out on a technicality, but just a few years later, another woman in Indiana um, was convicted um, uh, for, for, well, two things even though there was only one fetus, so it could technically only be one. Um, they say that she caused a miscarriage to happen. They charged her with neglecting a newborn and with causing the miscarriage, right? It can only be one. Um, and she got a 20-year sentence hmm. for this, right? So a lot of these folks are getting, um, I mean, they're having their children taken away, which is substantial, right? But they are also having lengthy prison sentences or um, terms of probation that are sort of just impossible to comply with, um, especially when you really look into the, kind of the details of their lives and what they have going on, um, right? So this is all with the protection of Roe v. Wade, by the way. 
right? Um, and, uh, you know, I've got around 800 cases from my three states, but for the, for the U.S., we've counted at least um, 1,800 arrest cases um, under Roe v. Wade. So without that, I think we should only expect to see more. I expect to see people, um, most of the time, people are getting arrested when they go to give birth. Um, so like the baby comes out, they slap handcuffs on you and they put you in a solitary cell in a jail. Where are we in this discussion at this point? Where do we go? Well, so we've just been talking about all of this stuff that, you know, folks have been able to get away with doing to people with the protection of Roe v. Wade on the books, right? Mm. And now that's just gone away. So where people were maybe getting arrested when they go to give birth, we're bringing charges then, I'm expecting now, and this is based on things that I've seen cops, district attorneys, healthcare providers in these states saying that now we can go earlier, right? Because viability isn't an issue anymore. Roe v. Wade, you know, spelled out that a person who is pregnant still counts as a person fully, and they have full rights to their body until viability, (laughs) which was like, oh, that's such a low bar, Um, right? But we don't even have that anymore. And so, you know, it, it, I mean, this is technically true already in Alabama. This was true with Roe v. Wade on the books, but I think we'll start seeing this in more places where technically speaking, if you were like two hours pregnant and you drank a beer, you are technically a felony child abuser in that state, right? Even if you Um, don't know that you're pregnant. Even if you don't know that you're pregnant. Yes, they specified that. That um, knowledge of pregnancy is uh, irrelevant, right? Um, So for substance abuse folks, this is, this could be a blessing, right? So nobody should drink or do any drugs ever. I'm I'm being. Yeah. Telling people that works great. Right. Um, (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Most of the cases that I've seen did involve folks who were struggling with substance use disorder, became pregnant. And now what do we do? Right. Um, And apparently our answer to that was like, put them in cages. Um, uh, Hasn't been great um, health wise. I'm seeing some stuff happening already, though. I mean, obviously, there's all this kinds of trigger laws going into effect in various states. Um, kind of watching the update almost hourly to see, like, okay, are you allowed to do X, Y, and Z in Texas? Um, but I've been noticing some other stuff too. So I've already been seeing that um, if you are someone who seems like you could become pregnant, I guess like female-ish <laughs> and of reproductive age. Um, some healthcare providers are not prescribing needed medications anymore to these patients because they're worried if you become pregnant, this medication could cause a miscarriage. And so I'm sorry that you have lupus. I'm sorry that you have rheumatoid arthritis. I'm sorry that you, you know, got long COVID and you need this medication for clotting, but it could cause a miscarriage and you look like you could get knocked up. So we're not going to give you these pills. Um, some tear gas. Can I ask you a question, professor? Yes. How did you become so passionate about this topic? Oh, so, Great so I was, mark. yeah, I got all fired up, don't I? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, so um, I wasn't really raised as a feminist, um, uh, but, you know, some of these issues, even, you know, back in like middle school, seeing the like the injustices of like a little sister watching her big brother getting treated like a guy, you know, and being like, this isn't fair. Um, kind of those early feminist origins. But um, when I was in college, I got um, uh, much more involved and interested in reproductive rights in sexual politics, frankly. Um, I'm a victim of sexual violence. And for me, learning as much as I could about 
bodies and about sex and about reproduction was like this really healing, empowering thing. It's a knowledge that I wish I had had at a much earlier age. Um, I think it would have helped me maybe contextualize and understand some things. Um, and so, you know, I got involved in campus groups and was writing all of my little college papers on these issues. Um, and I did like you have, Did you have any family that was upset? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I've got some awesome kind of pagan aunts. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, my mom is so not into this stuff at all. Um, is she yeah. pro-life? Uh, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's complicated with her. It's the sound of some foster cats that I have. <laughs> so do you have con do you have conversations with your mother about it? Um, not anymore. We're, we don't really talk anymore. Um, but so you know, how did this, how did this conversation become the most divisive, most heated conversation that the world has ever seen? I think a lot of bad faith politicking that led to some very effective, um, kind of discourse framing and even like linguistic framing of this issue um that i mean now there's so much misinformation even like when news outlets are reporting on various bills they'll say like oh it's a heartbeat ban bill like don't call it a heartbeat ban right you're seeding the terror but why is it always a fight and not a conversation it's always there's a line drawn and mm -hmm. you're either on that side or that side i don't know when it became political because it is absolutely political Similar to COVID. Political after, well, it's always been political, right? I'm varying stages. But so we back can talk to about, when, like, can you go back and give us the evolution of it? Like, yeah. like 1800s and what, what it was like as an illegal and then yeah. when it became legal and where the pushback yeah. was and, and yeah. when it actually became this huge division. Yeah. So um, I know they, the, Samuel Alito played like Lucy Goosey with the history and in, in the opinion too. I know a lot of pro-choice historians that are pissed about his characterization. Um, abortion has always been like a common thing. Like as long as people have been wanting to have sex and not have babies, they've been finding ways to do that. Um, and so when I mean, you can look historically like yeah. at various plants and, you know, um, ben stuff Franklin. Ben Franklin wrote recipes on... Mm -hmm a guide on how to do it safely. Um, so this was something that was considered normal and, and considered but normal. But there was always still a group of people who thought that that was wrong and immoral. Not right? even yet. Not yet. Not really? quite yet. Um, even in, well, for Abrahamic religions, it was um, the moment of quickening was the kind of cutoff. So abortion was like a pretty normal part of life. You didn't regulate it because like we don't regulate a whole bunch of our normal stuff from life. Um, so going back to evolution, like we have no significant brain and we choose, like, we don't want another animal that we've birthed with, you know, eat our child. Going back to that period of evolution, are we? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that we, we, can, we can comment on that. We can speculate about it. I'm not an anthropologist, 
but um, people were also having way fewer periods back in the caveman days um, because of things like malnutrition and stuff. So I think being burdened with like child after child and being bred to death is maybe not as much of an issue then. But so one of the things that we saw um, the in the this era, we see the professionalization of medicine. They're trying to kind of midwives do all that birth stuff. What if we did it instead, right? Kind of wanting to get into that territory. That is There's true. Also concern about white women not having as many babies anymore um right so and this when kind was of that means, where where are we in the uh we're in the like mid 1800s mid 1800s okay. so that we've got immigration happening uh-oh <laughs> we've never liked that much depending on where they're coming from um and you know it's a normal kind of economic thing as societies industrialize there is less incentive to have a ton of kids so we see white women having fewer children. We see this professionalization of medicine and doctors kind of wanting to scoop up birth. Um, what is what is what do you, what do you mean? Well, that's true. That was that was part of Semmelweis. There's scoop no question. Up birth. Absolutely. The the the. It was some like mystical the women. Obi-Gin <laughs> folks. Obi-Gin <laughs> folks recognize. I'll, I'll just comment on this quickly. That that the pregnant woman was a potential gold mine and to take that away from midwives there's no question that that was happening around the 1830s 1840s absolutely yeah. and that was that we can talk about some of us later on but let's go back to this so so i, I think tom did some research about what what was your sense about the constitution yeah so uh and i think it's i think it's a bit fallacious to say well what would the founding fathers say but okay. As a reference, the Founding Fathers thought the topic of abortion to be so trivial that it didn't warrant mention in the Constitution. Mm. Yeah, because like, we don't, so we don't legislate breakfast cereal. Right. Or, like, pants. Because <laughs> they're we just don't, like, yeah, pants. And my, my, my wife commented that, that we don't legislate whether you can get a coronary bypass. Right. So you're saying that the evolution was the people saying that this isn't right. Yeah, and it's around that same time that we see a religious shift. So, well, some people said it's not right. Mid eighteen hundreds, right? So, so it's also... it was normalized until the mid eighteen hundreds. Well, I, I'm not. I'm not sure normalized. Right? It, it was. It I was think not... it's still normal. We just have to pretend like it's not. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I um... mean, I, I'm trying to go back <laughs> and and see the evolution of how someone from the eighteen eighties got to the two thousand and twenty two. So some more things happened, right? So, um, so when did the, the wait, 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 let's just, hear the more things. What, what, when what did the people start to say like this isn't right and we're stepping aside? We don't have good poll data from back then, but we can look at what these big institutional moves were that were being made. And one of the big ones is a religious shift. Um, and this is, I mean, the, the Catholics, right? This was big for Catholicism, but the Abrahamic faiths in general, this was like sort of the rule, is that. Um, quickening or being able to feel the fetus moving inside of you is when the fetus gets its soul. And if you Google image quickening, there's like a painting of like a baby flying through the sky and like going into like a sleeping woman. And so as long as you were having- That was for like centuries and centuries. Okay. Right. And something that's notable about that is only the pregnant person can tell you when that happens, right? It's literally her ability to like feel the movement, right? But there was this, the, the shift, the Catholic church said, actually, not anymore. Quickening isn't going to be the thing anymore. Now abortion's illegal all the time, 
right? And to me, it's difficult to separate that out from a lot of the other stuff that's happening, you know, in this time period. But so those are like three big things that happen. And then we have the passage of what are called the Comstock laws. So Anthony Comstock, one of my students. Obscenity um, laws. Yeah, one of my students, um, I asked the class, you're doing exam review, and I was like, who's Anthony Comstock? And the student was like, he was that guy that was afraid of sex, right? Um, And I just thought that was so funny. So he was a postmaster general, but he was also this like big anti-obscenity guy. And he wrote this piece of legislation that went into effect that made it a crime to send anything considered obscene through the mail. And this included medical textbooks. This included pamphlets about like the rhythm method. And then this included also the actual instruments, herbs, et cetera, that you would use to do contraception that you would use to do abortion. And so at this point, everything- Did he say that in his, in his law? It, it was like included, but not limited to and named these? Or was that over time courts were like, well, maybe it does apply. This is obscene to me. So, oh, I mean, our trying to figure out what counts as obscene is like been constantly changing. But no, like it was pretty adamant. His law it was, was like, I don't want people sending obscene child no condoms or my porn mail. or medical textbooks with pictures of naked people. But that it was it said that, or it was just like obscene, defined in his mind. Isn't it subjective? I mean, I, I don't mean to slow, I don't mean to slow things down. You know, things that we've <laughs> been is, talking about. This is a three-hour show, right? I, uh, clearly, one one of the most politicized, divisive decisions, and yet who has the right to take away a decision from a woman? From, from anyone. Who has the right to do that? So let's, let's, we've got a few minutes left. Dr. Professor Howard, what about that? Yeah, I mean, to me, this, as someone who, like, I'm knock upable, you know, <laughs> so, like, it is a really jarring thing that this, something that was once considered a fundamental right is now something that I do not have the right to anymore, not a protected constitutional right to anymore, and, you know, where I am now in California, I'm safe, but I have friends that live in these states with bands, I have students that live in these states with bands, and I'm really worried about what's going to happen to them. Um, you know, I think we were talking about reasons why people have abortions. And I think that there's a lot of misinformation about this. Um, most people who have an abortion in the United States are already moms. 60% of people who have abortions have already had one child. And so in a big way, when we talk about making sure people have the right to abortion, we are trying to make sure that families are okay, right? And we look at the reasons that people give for why they have abortions. It's a combination of things. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a free abortion on demand without apology gal myself, um, right? But most of the time, it's happening in the first trimester, over ninety percent of the time, and it's happening um, because we don't have good childcare. It's happening because you can't continue education. It's happening because um, it won't work with your job. It's happening because you can't afford it. We don't have great resources for families. We have a serious poverty problem in the United States. The maternal mortality rate in this country is really high for a developed country. And because of this decision, we anticipate that it's going to go up a lot um, by around 33% for Black women um, who already have this hugely elevated rate. And so, you know, we're talking about the lives and the families of people who can get pregnant And then when we look at some of the kind of far-reaching implications of this decision, it's about what rights do people with the capacity for pregnancy have? Because we're seeing these decisions being made on the basis that at some point in the future, 
you could become pregnant against your will, right? Like being denied your medication for this reason. Um, In the past, we've deprived people of certain kinds of employment for this reason. If you couldn't prove you were infertile, you weren't allowed to work in some of the best factory jobs, for example, right? So yeah, I mean, the implications of this are huge. What it comes down to is, are people with the capacity for pregnancy fully people under the law or not? And with this decision, it was a big push in the direction of not. Again, I got to say, uh, because a lot of people have images in their head of what an abortion is. I So I went to Catholic school for, I'd say, preschool to maybe fifth grade. And I read in our like student Bibles, there's a path, there was a passage about, you know, abortion, about what it is. And it describes the worst case scenarios of a third trimester, like something that no no one actually wants the procedure of and i won't go into detail on the radio but it's grisly and it It can be yeah well because like you know this is third trimester yeah a first trimester abortion is a heavy flow period well i mean so what it takes about two minutes if you're doing a, an aspiration of abortion, right? It takes about two minutes to actually do the thing. Um, I've, I've, I used to work at a clinic. I was a handholder at a clinic. So helping people breathe and feel their feelings and do the pain, all this stuff. Um, most people feel relief after they have an abortion. Um, most people, uh, we didn't, not, some clinics will knock you out um, and some patients want that, which I respect. Um, our clinic didn't do that. People were awake um, just with, with ibuprofen, right? So it's, it's, not, um, it's not surgical, nothing gets cut. Um, and it's quick and recovery is not really intense and um, it is so safe. It is like so much safer than so many other totally common outpatient procedures. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, that's over 90% of abortions. Are and bad. that's, that's what I think it, 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 is. It's kind of, it's really insulting to think that so many women are these like evil witches who want to get pregnant so that in their third trimester, they can have the fully formed baby ripped out and torn apart in front of their eyes so they can sell the limbs to make vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. These people are a fantasy. (laughs) Well, and it freaks people out pretty good too, right? I mean, can you think of anything more horrible? If you are interested in the reality of third trimester abortion, I recommend a documentary called After Tiller. Um, They follow the, I think at the time, five remaining abortion providers who would do third trimester abortions. And you see the things that they do to make the experience as painless as possible for their patients. And that includes, if patients want to, the ability to hold and grieve an intact baby once it's been removed, right? So there are all kinds of ways of managing that. Um, Yeah, the amount of courage and compassion. You're you're in favor of that. Like that's... Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it is like less than 1% of abortion cases and it is basically always a wanted pregnancy when something's gone terribly wrong. And so parents are in this position of deciding, okay, we can, we can, you know, continue to carry this dying pregnancy and you'll feel it and you'll think of it and it's in your body at all times. Right. Or you can give birth to a baby that will have a short, painful, terrible life where we can take care of it now. What do you say to somebody who says that's murder? That's immoral. Can we have a conversation and agree to disagree? Here's what I would say. Legally speaking, anyway, at least for now, we are not morally? allowed. 
How about forget that? Let, 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 let her finish. Let her finish. Yeah. More, well, so because morally, it's hard when we're talking about murdering people. It is hard for us to come to a moral consensus. But I would say that you know you're essentially requiring someone to use their body against their will to support the life of another, and that that's considered a form of indentured servitude, and that that's not legal in this country in terms of morally. I think most of the parents who are making that decision are making a moral decision for themselves. They are choosing to spare their baby of pain and suffering. Um, so we're talking about we're talking about fetuses that are already at risk for profound medical compensation yeah. when they are born. Not not necessarily a baby that is healthy and ready to go, but the, these are are fetuses that have been diagnosed by professionals that this page this baby is at high high risk for a life of trauma and a short one at that right like short painful i mean and sometimes it's not even a there's no question that the baby won't survive it's a matter of well it's heart still beating and it's inside your body and so even though you are going septic right now a reality Mm -hmm. right the heart's still beating, so we won't do anything. I mean, a woman in Ireland died. That's one of the things that galvanized the movement there to legalize abortion, right? This, the hospital couldn't do anything. This is a, the constitution says that the fetus in your body, the heart is still beating. It's a person. And so we can't help you. And so we're going to watch you while you slowly die on this table. She went septic and died from blood infection because of the pregnancy. And we've been seeing this already too. So like not in the third trimester, but ectopic pregnancies that's a pregnancy where the um the egg implants somewhere other than the uterus so these are not viable pregnancies and most of the time it settles in the fallopian tube and it'll kill you right it'll rupture the tube you'll you'll hemorrhage and die we've already been seeing cases in a handful of states with bans where physicians don't feel like they can do the medical treatment until they consult hospital lawyers. And there was just a case, we, they didn't disclose the state, but it was just last week where someone came in with an ectopic pregnancy. They consulted with lawyers for 11 hours before they treated her. And in that time, the tube did rupture and she'd been bleeding out. I mean, it's it's nightmare stuff. So, was so the baby all right? Professor, we, we, we have a few minutes left and, and there's so much more to discuss, but... Um, the I am approach, and, and this is still an I am, says because the four domains, your home, the social, biological, and ICM, we've been talking about all four of these. Because the four domains interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. You don't have to change everything. There has been a small change with a big effect. Professor Howard, what small change can you recommend to our listeners as we begin to grapple with the new ruling? I would say believe people when they tell you about their bodies and their lives believe them believe them okay the second truth of the i am uh you control no one you influence everyone you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be professor grace howard what kind of influence do you want to be i want to be a caring influence just think like human animals like our fingernails kind of suck and like our teeth aren't that sharp and our knee joints don't make any sense Hmm. but we're like good at being together right and humanity works when we're together and humanity works when we care about one another yes that is very true folks i i hope that that we can continue this very important discussion not an argument 
Mark is absolutely right. We need to be able to respect each other, value each other, so we can trust each other with our points of view. This is how we come together as a community, as a culture, as a species. We all want the same thing, to feel valuable. My concern is that when someone's rights are taken away, where is their value? And I'm, I'm not saying one way or the other, but we are in a position right now where we have a country that must come together. Professor Howard, thank you so much for being on the Dr. Joe Show tonight. Thank you so much. All right, we'll see you next week.